Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly live stream with Science of Future with Isaac Arthur and I am Isaac Arthur and uh, my wife was just telling me before we got started that this is the roughly two year anniversary of us doing the live stream so this is number 23 but we skipped a couple occasions, two years now doing live streams and hopefully they've gotten a bit better. Uh, we'll get to your questions in just a moment and uh, just go ahead and give those to the mods and they'll bring them up to me as soon as we can but we have a couple that were from last time and we'll go ahead and get started. Yes, thank you, Isaac. This is Sarah. I think you forgot to mention that I was going to be reading the questions to you today. Yes, my wife Sarah, whose voice you're hearing, is the one reading the questions to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had some questions that we were unable to get to the in August, and I'm going to start with one from Aka. Isaac Arthur, greetings. Speaking of building megastructures, what do you think would economically make more sense? Hunt and mine asteroids, or mine the moon in the new or mine the moon in the near future? Uh, that kind of depends on where your target is for actually building the various megastructures. We'll be looking at that more in the Returns of the Moon episode on October 1st, on our next episode, and then the uh, that's from the Becoming a Planetary Species uh, series, episode 3. Episode 5, which I believe is late October or early November, will cover the asteroid mining orbital settlements case. Early on, when you're building mostly around Earth, there are going to be some near-Earth asteroids, not the ones in the belt, but the near-Earth asteroids, and there are tens of thousands of those, that might have a lower delta V or be more accessible to reach and bring into orbit than the Moon, but if you're doing heavy construction um, of orbital settlements around the planet, you probably would get most of that from the Moon. The asteroids are likely to be more orbital settlements set up there, or used for like Lagrange points or cyclos, which was something we'll cover in the Mars episode, cyclos being a type of way of doing a fast spaceship between Mars and Earth or other planets. We have a question from Chris as well. How are we determining the mass of whole galaxies to detect dark matter? Seems that it would be hard to pin down an accurate mass for so many stars, dust, and rocks. This is my first question. Thanks in advance. Uh, there's actually an example of this is how we found dark matter in the first place is we were determining the mass of the galaxies, mostly by how much they poured on each other gravitationally, and it wasn't coming up as enough. Same, we'd start looking through and seeing how much dust absorption there was to try to estimate the mass of regular matter, and we figured, oh, it's probably just interstellar dust. Lots and lots of it not forming into stars yet. Or maybe even a ton of black holes. But as we got better at detecting things like that, we started seeing there was nowhere near enough mass. As to how we actually detect them, all the galaxies are moving away from each other, with a few exceptions like Andromeda and us, and we can kind of calculate how much gravity versus how much push away from us they seem to be getting, and for that we can estimate both the actual mass involved of dark matter and dark energy, and that's basically how we do that. 
Very nice. Thank you. Um, we had a, a question about your Benevolent Aliens video from Eric Malsbo, and he said, do you deem it plausible and possible to ask extraterrestrial beings for help regarding major issues on Earth? And if yes, how? Well, the question is always if they're out there, and as you guys know, I tend to assume that they are not, at least nowhere near us. Um, but obviously they are, uh, and they are listening. I don't know they'd be very likely to respond, uh, given that they don't really seem to be very uh, involved. They might have some kind of prime directive thing going on, or extreme case of apathy. So it is one of those examples where if you're asking them, presumably people have asked them before, and uh, they presumably have the technology to be a little bit better than just listening to the radio waves, but there might be a way to do it. I don't know if we've actually ever sent out a radio wave just saying, hey, we'd like to talk, we'd, we'd like some help. We sent out, hey, we'd like to talk kind of messages, but could you send us a blueprint for fusion? Maybe if we did that, we could apply. It's hard to say, but um, I would tend to assume that they probably would not be in a position to answer us simply because they don't exist anywhere near enough to us to do that. Okay. Do we have questions from the... We uh, do, yes. We have some questions coming in at the moment. And so I'm going to start with one um, from GameSpot Live. What do you think about larger life on Venus? Hmm. We had that phosphine gas trace in the atmosphere that was the big news for the last couple of weeks. Um, and then we talked about briefly in this week's episode... Um, the usual thought is that if you're taking life forms on Venus and they're in the atmosphere, they'd have to be either very tiny microbes that could float around like dust in the atmosphere, or they'd have to be living blimps, which is potentially doable. You could have um, you know, a pathway that resulted in things expanding themselves to be basically living blimps, in which case they might be very big if they're going to be small, but size is often not an advantage either, and so and there's the other thing, if they were big enough, then we'd probably, well, I wouldn't say we'd spot them yet. We really haven't done enough on Venus to be able to say we could have spot something even the size of a blue whale. But if you got really big ones, we'd probably tend to see those and maybe already have seen them. But then there's got to be a whole chain of, uh, you know, food chain for these things to be living on, a whole ecological niche, and that should have things filling up in various size ranges, too. Um, I tend to assume we're not going to find any life on Venus, and if we do, you know, with the phosphine gas, for instance, What's the most likely way it could have gotten on Venus? Well, it could have come in on a meteorite any number of times. It could have evolved there naturally, or it could have come in on one of our space probes, because we don't <laughs> really bother sterilizing those as well as we should. Uh, all it would take is a handful of those microbes to have survived the journey from Earth, which is entirely plausible, and then to have survived, and at least one of them survives in Venus, divides, and then even 10 years later, you know, microbes reproduce very quickly. So if there does turn out to be microbial life on Venus, I'd say there's probably 50-50 odds that its origin was off. <laughs> okay, so we have a question here from Isaac Bordeaux. Hey, Isaac, I hope you are having a good weekend. Which one do you think is more likely, faster-than-light travel or faster-than-light communications? Mm, I am having a good weekend, and you have an excellent first name. Um, let's see. We usually say faster light communication is the more likely just because there's a little bit more wiggle room in special relativity and general relativity permit things like that. Um, you are not necessarily engaging in time travel to transmit a message a distance farther than light could have carried it. You know, that's the other aspect of that is if you are doing something with like a wormhole, for instance, it's obviously a lot easier to make a wormhole mouth that's just big enough to get, you know, a laser beam through than to actually fill a person with. 
And you can also, if there's a lot of noise from something like that, there probably would be a ton of noise. You know, trying to go through a wormhole is like going through a black hole. And so you have a lot of noise and interference that's probably going to be in that. And it's a lot easier to get it through a, you know, a signal that's just being pumped at a very slow amplitude uh, than it is to get something like a person alive and intact. So faster than light travel and communication, I tend to think neither one of them is allowed for the same reasons. But from a practical standpoint, I would tend to guess that the communication thing would be much easier. Possible exception of the Alcubierre warp drive. And again, that relies on negative matter and energy, but uh, that is more of a move object kind of thing. In which case, moving a small object with a little data chip on it is probably a lot easier than moving a, you know, a, a spaceship but with people on it. But either way, that's probably the case. Underlying emphasis, we want to arrive alive and intact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is one of the key issues a lot of time on these things. Alive, <laughs> intact, and back the other way. Oh yes, that too. Um, so speaking of alive, we have a question from Abenan Sarswat Gogoi. Will life evolve everywhere in the un excuse me, will life evolve everywhere in the universe where suitable conditions are available for a sufficient amount of time? Yes. Um, but the key word there is suitable conditions. We don't actually know what these suitable conditions for life emerging actually are. And it might be, I mean, it could literally be that there are none, that we are, you know, a byproduct of, you know, a, a higher level of reality, be a simulator deity, or that we are the freak anthropic odds of one in 10 to the hundredth of them being life in any universe and even smaller for ours. We do not know what the coincidental odds are for life popping up. It could be, as has been suggested, that um, a tendency of molecules to kind of put themselves into a heat dissipation mode, which you might remember from some articles last year, uh, might tend to result in metabolic processes, very basic metabolic process forming with chemicals into what would be basic life. If that were the case, the odds go up an awful lot. But again, we do not know how likely life is. And indeed, we can't even say, if, like, if we pin down where life originated on Earth within 10 million years, something like that, we still couldn't say that life had evolved that fast here and with other places. And we also couldn't say that it hasn't evolved since then because it might be something that's really common, but the first time something gets there and gets a certain degree of complexity, any new ones, any new events of that origin of life would just get swept away as being too primitive compared to what is already existing. Until we actually can really model that and produce that in the lab well, and we've come nowhere near that, uh, I've seen some Cisco modeling on it that is not very good, then we just don't know what those odds are. So it's just impossible to say right now how likely it is. But I would say that whatever it is, if you're in a place where it's likely to occur, give enough time, it will do so. A question from Stekra. When do you think the first Luna aluminum will be produced? Uh, Luna aluminum? Yes. Okay. Um, within the next 10 to 20 years, not necessarily in bulk though, but that would be one of those experiments we want to be doing is, is setting a kiln there to actually operate. Um, you know, there's so much aluminum on the surface of, of the moon and it's such a power intensive process that's like ideal for the basic kind of solar or nuclear process we want to be setting up on a good moon base. And aluminum is very light, easy to work with. It's very energy intensive to make. It's about its only downside compared to steel. But it's probably going to be a lot easier to produce in bulk than steel. So 
any kind of process where we're trying to look to create large amounts of oxygen, for instance, probably going to come in combination with something of a uh, furnace, you know, for iron, steel, or aluminum, because you'll be boiling out those oxides to produce the metal and the oxygen. So we have some experiments going for that already in terms of oxygen production. The next step would be to try to see if we can produce metals that way and get those up. In terms of large-scale metal production, um, five years plus or minus from the first moon base. <laughs> and that depends on how much you mean by large. We have a question from a channel regular, Albert Jackinson. Hi, Isaac. There seems to be a lot of dystopian or utopian societies portrayed in science fiction, but ones that are less extreme seem to be less prevalent. Why do you think that is? Um, narrative bias. Stories that are uh, stories that are not exciting are not published, are not read, do not get sequels. Um, you know, there are there is actually an entire genre of fiction, or I should say, subgenre. Almost each one that is just about day to day ordinary life, and I actually tend to be more fond of that in a lot of these shows than the exciting bits. But even then, you. If you have a society that's basically a, a genuine utopia, as opposed to the utopia on the surface with evil cracks underneath, or is not dystopian, just a, maybe a little bit of bureaucracy and problems, that's maybe not the sort of story that's going to have interesting heroes running around it. But uh, we do get examples of that kind of fiction, though. Um, uh, Artemis, sorry, not Artemis. Um, oh, that's not a bad example. Uh, the Motion by Andy Weir, who also did the book of Artemis. Um, there's no dystopia or utopia going on there. It's a regular old life. Uh, it's just that here you have one person who has gotten themselves stranded and everyone's going out of their way to help him. You know, that's a very utopian look at, at society. Everyone really does buckle down to try to help him once he, he makes his presence clear. And uh, so you can't have fiction like that. But when you're looking at civilizations in detail for the fiction, it's usually because you want to focus in on that civilization as part of the plot. And of course, that means it's probably very dystopian or there has been probably to get fixed. Uh, I suspect for us in the future, the reality will lie not just somewhere in the middle, but many places in the middle because there's only so many different societies over time and space, and some of them will be a lot better than others, but I suspect most of them will be on the whole, hopefully, relatively boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they get too boring, they won't be able to write any more books about them, and then they'd all be copying one another so well, the nice thing about science fiction is it's supposed to be about the future and there's always more of the future no matter how far ahead of the future you are <laughs> very true we have a question from jack bad boy could an advanced civilization harvest gravitational waves to use as energy also could gravitational waves be forcing the universe apart and thus be dark energy there's often a lot of discussion about whether or not uh dark energy is kind of the anti force for the repulsive force for gravity but it doesn't fit the ones we have negative forces for or i should say opposite forces for those act exactly the same only in the opposite direction um you know the electromagnetic force or your strong nuclear force dark energy does not act exactly opposite of gravity save in regard to the fact that it pushes space apart it's not pushing objects apart it's growing space that's the key thing about dark energy when a, what we say is dark energy and why we call it dark energy is because there's a certain amount of energy associated to a volume of space. So a new piece of space suddenly pops up somewhere, there's a little bit of energy there. What's happening here is not a gravitational force exerting on things, it's just new bits of space popping up randomly everywhere at once. Or at least we think randomly, we can't really tell yet. So is it possibly related to gravity? Or oh, I'd not be the least bit surprised if in the final theory that, you know, grand unified theory which you'll hear as much about these days, that actually got gravity unified with the other forces also included dark energy and was closely related. But 
as them actually being in, like the opposite force, I'd say no. As to harness here for energy, potentially. I mean, it'd be an awesome force if it was there because it appears to violate conservation of energy, uh, which is always one of those things you have to be kind of careful saying because it depends on what we mean by violate conservation of energy, but we've known about energy conservation violations since general relativity came out. Um, the question is, does it actually do it in any way that's useful to us? It's a little bit like vacuum energy. Um, you know, you can't get energy out of a cold, lukewarm tub because there's nothing to move it around with. It has to be hot or, or you have to have something cold or to draw the energy out of. Vacuum energy is very similar and dark energy is likely to be the same kind of case where there's a lot of energy there, but how do you actually go about removing it? And usually about the only way you can come up to think about how to do that with modern science and techniques would be to take some very long spring, uh, two billion light years long or so and uh, stretch it out with dark energy and pull it back in and, and maybe you gain a little bit of energy out of that process. But that's about the only thing I've ever heard really come up with that idea. I like this uh, this title. It says Blueberry Lane. Somebody uh, says, Hi, Isaac. How much further would automation need to improve to make the world borderline post-scarcity? How much more automation? Yes. How um, much further automation? It kind of depends on what sort of automation. Um, and always depends a lot on what we mean by post-scarcity. We do have an episode coming up on that again, either late October or early November, um, becoming a, a post-scarcity and culture of one civilization, which are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of things that can make you post-scarcity, but the two big ones we tend to focus on in the show are abundant and replaceable energy, renewable energy, um, or much, much better automation. And in fact, better automation will give you automatically renewable energy because you just can fabricate solar panels for a dollar square foot or something like that so it gets so cheap to make them that it's effectively abundant um but uh i would say that if we get to the point that maybe our total production from automation maybe doubles about what it is right now that would probably be enough to kick us over again it's so tied to what we actually get better at automating specifically again the solar panel example or mining uh, and then keyed into that, um, do we actually have a sustainability on that? Because you're not post-scarcity, e.g. a lack of scarcity, if you actually still have a core scarcity of energy, which is, of course, the big driving fuel for everything. The next question is from Abi Najib. Is a city inside an asteroid like in the expanse possible? And will you make an episode about it? We have talked about doing that inside asteroids before, and it's actually one of those things I tend to like to make sure we raise a point on. Sometimes they'll show you a hollowed asteroid where the asteroid is spinning around, and they say, look, it's, it's a you know, good spin in gravity habitat. All we do is hollow it out and spin it around. If you did that to an actual asteroid, you would rip it apart. Uh, the layer you're standing on has effectively that much gravity pushing outward, so it would be falling apart as though it was under 1G of gravity, or a little bit more, because it's 4,000 million where your feet are. And uh, most of those things, you could take them apart just of spinning them a little bit faster. They could not handle that level of rotation. Maybe the, metal, maybe the metallic ones, if you very carefully redid it, but they'd probably still rip apart. And the key with an asteroid, if you want to hollow it out and use it as a city, is to core it out, put a cylinder inside it, like a, like a thermos lining, and then put another cylinder nest inside that that you spin around. So you have a spinning habitat that's inside it, but it does not spin. The, the, you know, the soda can is spinning, the rockets inside is not. 
and that works perfectly fine. It's a very cheap source of uh, you know shielding. Um, you just burrow into the asteroid, which is simplistic enough, and you build your habitat, but you do not hollow it out and live on the inside of that, as it were. That, as to realism, though, very high. Um, not so much for the orbital sediments around Earth, because there you're chucking the matter in, um, and you have to pay the energy bill for moving gigatons of raw material you don't really need. Uh, but in terms like the asteroids, there are around a million of them, uh, at least, that are big enough to hollow out and kind of recombine into making like a, a at least a planet-sized habitat, if not an O'Neill cylinder. B-51 Bomber asks, you recently had an episode about the phosphorus problem. Is it possible to manufacture more phosphorus if a future civilization needs to alleviate a major shortage? Yes. The uh, And I think we mentioned that in that episode. Um... None of the stuff that goes on inside stars is something we actually have a problem replicating these days. I think that's a mistake people make about fusion sometimes is they say, oh, well, you know, it's very hard to do because you have to replicate the, the, you know, what's going on inside the center of a star. No, that would be easy. It's very easy to replicate the circumstance inside the center of the stars. Uh, that's not enough. You know, you think about how much energy the sun gives off. We say it's a 10 to the 26 watts. But then you have to keep in mind that if it's 10 to 26 watts that it's giving off and it's about 10 to 31 that it's weighing, that means that a kilogram of the stuff is giving off not even a milliwatt. You know, you need tons of the material that's in the center of the sun just to give you enough energy to light a light bulb. Um, it's just that it does it for billions of years. So it's very energy efficient, but not very energy intense. We have to do way better than that to make fusion. The same applies to things like supernova. Those are very extreme circumstances that are going on there, even compared to the insides of stars. But what's creating that silicon, just the thing's about to blow up, and then that silicon can absorb a neutron, presumably, but not positive about the process. Silicon absorbs a neutron and turns into phosphorus, and that's our source for phosphorus. So if we take a bunch of silicon-30 and ram it with neutrons, then we've got phosphorus. We've got things we can use to source of neutrons, like uranium, um, you know, breeder reactor, same as how we make um, plutonium. But the simple answer to that question is we can make phosphorus that way, but only if the phosphorus is valuable enough to us that it's basically as valuable as plutonium or some of the other things we make using breeder reactors. So that would require either a, a massively cheap source of neutrons, um, which is possible, or a desperate, desperate necessity for phosphorus. And uh, I think that by and large, we would probably only end up doing that after we'd exhausted everything else in the solar system, probably including taking apart uh, gas giants. <laughs> Mr. K says, what's your view on the wow signal? What do you think it was? Noise. Or reflection. I, I know the wow signal, you know, it certainly got a lot of people's attention, got a lot of interest in SETI, which I'm glad for, but you have to keep in mind with a lot of these things. If you're trying to send a message to people across space, you know, maybe it's an accidental blip of their own stuff that was otherwise being secret, but you're not going to have a signal that's you know a few bytes and doesn't repeat itself because you don't know if anyone's going to be listening. You blast that thing over and over and over again, a repeating pattern they cannot possibly be confused that is artificial origin. Or you send something very long that's still you know, clearly artificial that repeats, e.g. Wikipedia or some strained down Rosetta Stone that you just keep repeating over and over again and you know in a background signal of like the first thousand digits of pi you know they know that's artificial then um and so the only alternative is that that was uh 
an accident. Right? Well, if it was an accident from a nearby spaceship that just happened to give off that signal and nothing else, it's also just plausible to assume that it was reflected off of you know any number of other objects in our solar system, our moon, a satellite. There are so many options for how what could have accidentally produced that signal, and very little reason to think that that was an intentional attempt to contact us. Uh, Channel regular Jonathan asks, do you have any idea for a sci-fi fantasy setting or story that you would willingly tell us? Add-on question from staff. Is there a chance that we'll see any books written by Isaac? Um, Probably yes for something nonfiction. Uh, I was actually thinking about writing a Fermi Paradox uh, book or a collection of essays this year, but that was last year. I was thinking about that. That was before getting married. Yeah, that kind of got me a little bit distracted. <laughs> Fiction-wise, it's not that I don't have plenty of thoughts for potential stories. Uh, I actually routinely share them with folks and tell them to go ahead and write them up. It's more that I don't know that I'm very good with character dialogue. I think almost every character I write, whether they're a hero or a minor character or the bad guy, all kind of tend to come off like supervillains or chess masters um, <laughs> or wooden exposition things to just tell you about the backstory. I like creating worlds and settings. I'm not that interested in writing the plots of the stories for them. But I might give my hand a you know, I might give a shot at some point. But nonfiction, probably yes at some point. I mean, when you get around to it, the show is basically just essays that I, I put out, that I put a video on top of and narrate. Those could just easily be bundled into books. And I think at this point, I'd be up to, well, let's see, 300 episodes at uh, 5,000 words apiece. It's actually over 300 words. It'll be 150,000, 1.5 million words. There's probably several decent-sized books. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think, you know, the fantasy doorstop was like 4,000. John Hopkins says, could we use nanobots to grow megastructures? Potentially, if you can get nanobots that you can actually work to that. Although one thing that I like to warn people off with nanotechnology and replicators, we see them in science fiction always as, you know, a single breed. Think of nanomachines as more like a complex ecosystem with thousands of different varieties that are all working in tune, ranging from the smallest little things you can make and transmit to much, much bigger ones that might be the size of an entire cell or even you know visible to the naked eye. Uh, think of nanotechnology never as individual resemblers, but an entire spectrum of them, an entire ecosystem of them. And then also keep in mind that just because you can do something at a tiny scale does not mean it's advantageous. By and large, if you want to produce a, a sheet of metal, you are much better off using a great big stupid kiln that's automated, a clanking self-replicator example, as opposed to a trillion little robots that are doing that. You have to get them energy, you have to repair them, maintain them, they're fragile. In some cases, like if you want to make things so very big, you're going to incorporate very large things into it, e.g. vats of metal. We have a uh, donation from Winton Ashley. Thank you. And his question is, you said that some requirements for a species to be space-faring would be curiosity and expansionism. What about a desire for new things, places, and experiences? I would tend to say that's curiosity. Um, you know, you look at these things, we're usually talking about in a general way. Biologically, species should tend to be curious and expansionist in a general sense. As I say, when we're talking about things like end goals or instrumental goals, I have a desire to survive, we say, a will to survive as, a, as an organism, and it's survival of the species, we say, too. But these aren't programmed into you. These are not, you know, asthma-style laws written onto your brain. They are more an extrapolation of a number of things that have been successful at survival and are thus still there. Um, there is no will to survive built into you as a single lone, do not let yourself be destroyed. 
Um, <clears throat> the same thing tends to apply to uh, species of civilization. Uh, I don't know if Lewis and Clark, when they uh, Lewis and Clark, excuse me, uh, when they were you know exploring the Americas, were thinking one day there'll be a great city on the bay here, and and over here there'll be a gigantic bridge across the Mississippi in this place called St. Louis. And uh, my wife's claiming because she has more history than me. I think I just misnamed a few places they went to. No, you um, didn't. <laughs> point being, they were into exploration, but people who followed them up were more into colonization, right? And some people, they just want to get a phone by themselves and they want to be away from cities. But the net effect, you know, a hundred years later is their kids and the other folks who were at the area uh, had built a city, you know. That's what we mean is it's not like there's some overwhelming drive by every person to get out in space and colonize every war. There is for me. That's like my big end goal, get humanity across the entire galaxy. Um, but I don't think most people share that as their day-to-day, you know, motivation and goal. Um, and... Uh, you know, for some folks, this is going to be to explore. For some folks, it's going to be to run away. Some folks, it's going to be to get away from civilization uh, or to create a new civilization that meets their particular preferences and, and desires. And it's the net effect of all of these, that kind of statistical average that we would think brings people out into space more. So a species might be very curiosity-driven and out there to explore, but if they're very prone to that, they're going to want to help their peers who might want to follow after them to have a slightly easier time exploring or being out further, so they're going to set up an outpost. And someone's going to handle staying there when they are in their off time and, and uh, not out exploring themselves and running that outpost. And a thousand years later, it's a colony. You know, that's just how that kind of thing works out. We have a similar question from Battle Bunny. What odds would you give our civilization or species to survive the next 500 years? 50-50. <laughs> There's a thing we use sometimes in simulation hypothesis. It's uh, the principle of indifference. It's when you've got two very plausible options uh, that make sense and no other with the obvious scenarios, e.g. a yes-no question, but you have no way to look at the data for that. You just assume they're both equal odds. Uh, if you had three, you'd assume we'd be one and three. Uh, we could kill ourselves off tomorrow. Um, we could be in great condition 500 years from now. My usual thought on these things isn't that I don't think that we could do it, that we could accidentally kill ourselves off or intentionally do it. It's just that I don't tend to think it's very useful to contemplate those scenarios because, you know, if I get struck by a meteor tomorrow, I'm dead. I'm not really going to put that into my contingency planning for a given day. Um, I don't think we're going to wipe ourselves out, though, because, and again, you can't base it off of previous occasions. People have been predicting for over and over again that we're eventually going to wipe ourselves out, and we have not. And... Uh, I think that has a little bit to do with your personal outlook on life. If you're very pessimistic or cynical about your fellow mankind, you're probably going to assume we're going to die off. If you tend to have a little bit more faith in humanity, then you probably will tend to think we'll survive. As to which one of those views is right, I don't know. I do know which one I subscribe to. (laughs) I want to slip in two more questions here before the break. We have a donation from Cozy High, and he is asking, are there any near-term texts that worry you? Thanks, Cozy, for the donation. Near-term texts that worry me, artificial intelligence, because that we already have that going on. That's the big one. Um, and in some ways, I'm less worried about, you know, I really don't think of Skynet wiping us out that much. I really don't think of machine rebellions going on and killing us all. I tend to worry more about the effect it will have on our civilization when, you know, we have all these disruptions or we start saying, well, this robot's pretty smart, but it can't possibly be a person, therefore we can do whatever we want to it. You know, that's, or we can program to enjoy whatever we have it doing. That kind of thing worries me because it's it's a little bit like animal cruelty. You might say that, well, this might not be a person, but at the same time, 
the fact that you're doing it at all, if it isn't a person you're hoarding, is, is, is a pretty bad place to be taking yourself and a civilization. So I tend to worry a lot more about how we're going to treat fellow humans. If you look at a lot of the sci-fi from the early 20th century to the mid-20th century, there was a big focus on the feel that more factories and more automation would mean that we'd start treating people like machines. Um, and that's always a bit of a concern there. Um, that instead of anthropomorphizing the machines and the people, we would start uh, turning the people into you know being treated like machines, one big cog, you know, one more cog in the hive. So that tends to worry me a little bit more where AI is concerned. As to other technologies, um, automation and artificial intelligence are the really two big ones I'd be worried about. Um, I don't know that anything else really has potential for extreme catastrophe at this time. But then again, it could be what we call, uh, what we say, a honeypot technology. Um, honey trap technology, you stuff put your fingers in there and, and it's so tasty and tempting that you get stung by the bees and even though you know the bees are there or you can't see them and you're completely you know into this technology before you see the dangers and it wipes you out. So um, that though I'd say is the real one that always worries me is artificial intelligence. So after that exploration of the negative side, let's take a quick look at the positive side before moving forward. We have a donation from Tyron Beard and he says, so glad to catch a live stream. Live. Well, it's live. I plug you everywhere, but I must ask, what is our next step forward? Artificial intelligence and automation. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, <laughs> didn't you just say that that was negative? Yeah. Um, you know, the things we always have to worry the most about are the things that we have a desire to do for good reasons. When there's something we want to do that's dangerous and stupid, like, uh, you know, base jumping. It's not, not to offend everyone who base jumps, but uh, I think everyone knows that's a pretty dangerous sport. Um, it's very easy to talk people out of doing that. It might be exciting, but it's very dangerous. It's a lot harder to talk people out of using a technology that has so many advantages and so many potential advantages for saving lives. You know, self-driving cars, when we get them walking, will save. I think we have 40,000 people die in car accidents in the United States every year. That number's probably changed since I've been looking it up, but 40,000 less dead people a year from self-driving cars. Um, that would be one example of a very attractive technology. Um, people who don't have to spend as much time at work so they can spend more time with their family. Um, teachers who can spend more time one-on-one with the students because the machines are helping do a lot of the simplistic parts of the education. Um, all those things are very, very attractive. And they are probably very, very good for us. And they are also potentially very dangerous. So it's the same with uh, internal combustion engine or nuclear power or so many others. The danger and the reward is the fact that there are both of them that make it such a concern because the question is, can you rise up the challenge and find a way to use this safely or is it going to smack you under? And uh, automation is the one that offers us the biggest chance of really getting up into space and really having that civilization we all want where you know it's the horn of plenty as it were and uh so it's that challenge we're going to have to tackle and i think that's why we focus on it so much otherwise we could just say ban that stuff you know dune style but leo and jihad no artificial intelligence that's the problem though is that it's got so many advantages we get better at that you probably can't do that all right we're going to go ahead and head to break we'll see you in a few minutes so we'll be taking a quick break and it's a great chance to grab a drink and a snack, like I'm doing, or get some questions into our moderators. Folks occasionally ask what the process is for getting those questions in, and the simple version is you put it in the chat, the mods copy and paste those into a Discord window, and Sarah reads them off to me. 
They go roughly in chronological order of being asked, but many do get skipped if the mods can't figure out what the question is asking, if it's too roughly misspelled, includes profanity or is one of our no-go topics like current politics. Sometimes one of the audience or mods will have answered the question too, or was a topic that we'll cover in upcoming episodes, and they can get skipped for that. Our mods are frequently also our script editors so often know if I did or didn't cover something in an episode coming up soon. We do prioritize Super Chats but beyond that and the aforementioned, we basically get them in the order given. If yours gets skipped it's fine to resubmit it, but odds are if you've done that twice, it's probably a question I'm not going to see. Incidentally I don't see the chat real time, neither does Sarah. While I do go back and watch it afterwards, I can't juggle monitoring our chat and fielding questions simultaneously, our mods handle that and I can't reply to the chat once the livestream is over but I do reply to the comments on the live stream that evening and next day, so if yours doesn't get asked you can copy and paste it there after the show and I'll try to get to it. I was mentioning a moment ago that our moderators are often our editors too, but many are not and many of our moderators on our other social media forums wear multiple hats for the show as their time and interest permit. There's around a hundred volunteers who help out on the show, some a little, some a lot, and in a bunch of different capacities, many of which aren't in our credit roll at the end of the episodes. So I want to take a moment to thank them for all they do, past, present, and future. If you're interested in helping SFIA out in the future, we're always looking for volunteers, whether it's moderating, editing, brainstorming, graphics, or so on. We're also grateful to everyone who's donated to help keep the show going by Patreon or over at our website, IsaacArthur.net. And speaking of patrons, happy 30th birthday Owen! But the biggest thing you can do to help the show is just to share with others and hit the like button on the episodes. Lastly, I wanted to give a quick shout out to David Dickinson, who co-authored the Universe Today Ultimate Guide to Viewing the Cosmos last year with my friend Fraser Kane, and who has a new book out, The Backyard Astronomer's Field Guide, and sent me a review copy. It's an excellent guidebook and if you're looking to do some astronomy in your backyard, October 1st is going to be the best night of the year to look at Mercury, local weather permitting, and we've got the Draconid meteor showers on October 7th, and Mars at its best angle for photography on October 13th. We also have an episode on Mars coming up in October too. If I've not mentioned it before, I used to run the observatory for my university back when I was in grad school, and I always recommend autumn viewing as cold air is best for viewing but it's still warm enough not to need five layers of clothes and a thermos full of coffee or hot chocolate. It's a fun hobby but one of the few areas where amateurs can still contribute a lot to the science. And who knows, you might save the world if you spot that next asteroid heading your way. And Dickinson's Field Guide is a great companion for getting started. With all that said, let's get back to the show. And we're back. Well, we have gotten quite a bit of audience participation today and I have a lot of questions for you remaining. So uh, to start off with, we have Kurt Elm. Isn't a black hole civilization hilariously vulnerable to a hit from a much smaller black hole, like a magazine hit to a battleship? Uh, potentially. If you hit a, a black hole with another black hole, that requires some very precision targeting because you're going to have to pretty much hit them right on. When two black holes merge, what's going to happen is they're going to grow relative to their size. So if I hit another black hole with another black hole, yes, you will have a certain amount of gravity wave pop out, but if it's just a very tiny black hole hitting it, it's not going to do much to disrupt things. Um, another question from the infallible God King of Humankind says, how do you think humankind will react to the confirmation of extraterrestrial life? Will people disregard it because it's just microbial, or will we panic due to the presence of the super advanced? 
uh, I guess kind of depends on the context. The uh, the user ID name there made me think of 40K. So uh, obviously, uh, if there's Xenos 40K style, we will react by dying a lot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think the last poll I saw on this said 50% of the population already believes that aliens are around and in contact with us. Such being the case, you know, the reality is going to be much more shocking with the information itself. It'll be big news for a couple weeks, and it will be, you know, one of those game-changing things for civilization, but I don't think it's going to be riots in the streets or anything like that, that unless they are attacking us and murdering us. Uh, yeah, that, that's positive. <laughs> uh, weekday Wargaming asks, can you have an interstellar empire without faster than light? Yes, but, you know, when we say, you know, Solar Empire, a lot of times what people mean is a galaxy-wide one, which is, you know, 100 billion stars. They are around 1,000 within a light century of us in terms of communication time that we could heal from them and respond back in a century. That's kind of pushing it to have a civilization going that's that big, but it kind of depends on how closely they have to be linked together. If you've gotten yourself very stable as civilizations, where you really just have a kind of a loose agreement of trade treaties and things like that that run between the various star systems, that could probably be a pretty well-knit-together thing, especially with life extension going on. Similarly, uh, Cosmo Explorer 101 says, could there ever be a time period where the population increases so fast that we burn out our resources before we can get enough people to different places? Yes, it's possible. Um, we had this come up. We had this come up last time with Malthusian uh, concepts. Is you know, can you grow too fast that you you kill yourself off as a war and collapse? I tend to think that we're smart enough to avoid that. Many people disagree, and obviously those are opinions mine and theirs. But you know, we talk about how our population growth rate is slowing down compared to last century and quadrupled, and it's still rising. That's that's a thing people miss on this sometimes. The population has still been increasing. It will hit eight billion in a couple of years. And it was 6.2 at the beginning of the century. Um, and uh, yet that population growth rate has slowed a lot too. Um, but it could go right back up again. Life extension technology where suddenly people decide I want to have a kid every three years and I'm going to do it for 500 years. That's going to see a big rise of population. And it's not even getting in things like digital people cloning. <clears throat> if you can clone people, you can produce them probably as, as fast as you want. Uh, you know, typically in the duplication mode of cloning as opposed to just growing a twin. And with digital people, they might be living ridiculously fast. Their subjective time might be, I'm going to have a kid once every thousand years of personal time. And that means they are having a new kid every 10 seconds, you know? I, I think they better consult with their wives on that, with the life extension technology. Just saying, when you said three, ch a child every three years for 500 years, that's like 166 kids. Yeah. That's a doable number, I think. <laughs> but, uh, currently, um, the record is 69 children for one woman. That's an awful lot. Well, there you go. But, I mean, again, with things like cloning options or with digitization, you don't necessarily need to have another person involved either. Um, you got a lot of grandkids that way, too. <laughs> grandkids. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about 500 grandkids. Anyway, um, we have a question from Zolt Z. You often advocate space farming. Wouldn't we need to ship up one ton of bio-waste to harvest one ton of biomass, rendering the process incredibly energy expensive? No. It's a common mistake to assume that everything that you're eating is grown out of things that are already dead. Uh, almost all the mass of a plant is coming from water and nitrogen in the air, right? Um, and things like hydroponics, for instance, you know, they are putting the nutrients in there, but they're still getting most of their mass from the water and the air. 
uh, nitrogen and, oxygen and water are all available besides this planet. You, you bring them in from sources that have low gravity wells, and you bring up your basic microbes to get the thing growing. And you know, having the available biomaterial, especially depending on the species of plant, can be very important, but <clears throat> generally speaking, it's the microbes in that soil that matter, not the actual soil content that you could be producing from almost any inorganic sources, moons, asteroids, etc., with refinement. Um, Hinge asks if you have any opinions on Tabby's star. Uh, we did an episode about that a few years back, and, and I, you know, I've not seen any new evidence on that that really changed my mind from thinking that it was probably going to be a debris cloud that it turned out to be. I haven't checked on the last few months to see if there's been any updates. Uh, my friend John Michael Godier, who runs uh, well, his show in Event Horizon, he's always been very good at keeping me up in track on that, so is Fraser Kane, so I'll defer to that if there's been any major developments. But, uh, and there's certainly shows worth checking out, but um, I would say that I'm still of the opinion that there's no indication that it's an artificial source of life. Sir Barks a lot says, "How long until we get Christos, I'm sorry, cryostasis, so we don't have to worry about faster than light travel?" Well, we already have it. Uh, we can freeze people pretty good. It's just the getting them back alive bit. And that's the interesting thing from cryonics is, is that you might go ahead and ship people out before you actually got the method working if you had decent enough artificial intelligence on the other end that you could send them the blueprints and details of how to make the thing to wake them up. Um, the thing that I like to point out, though, is that the technology that you need to resurrect someone from current cryo methods uh, essentially is identical to the technologies you need to simply extend their life indefinitely because you have to do that kind of very fine detail cellular repair especially their neurons and if you can do that then it doesn't matter if you got them on cryo or not you can just go ahead and extend their life indefinitely uh, and if you just worry about them being bored on the trip uh, they can find ways to amuse themselves or you could put them into a more um, you know, uh, Hamill type of stasis where you're basically just shutting their brain activity down while keeping them alive that whole time. And then you wake up and you turn it back on. No need for freezing. Andrew Soto, thank you for your very generous, uh, very generous gift here. And um, his question is, for uploading consciousness, could we do so by replacing every synapse in the brain with a copy of that structure in a synthetic brain so that the brain signals are slowly migrated into the new one? migrating consciousness instead of direct cloning. Well, thank you very much, and for your donation, too. Um, yes, I, but the difference I'd usually say on that is, you know, the brain is not a single object that you necessarily need to be replicating. You could be running it quite a ways apart from the, the synthetic chunk or other bits of it, but you could also just be replacing it building by building like a city. Think of the brain like a city, and you're replacing individual buildings. While the synapses starts failing down, you have little machines go in and repair those, replace those. And you might do that strictly biologically, too, because you've got the technology of making copies of them in an artificial sense, like with wires or optical fibers. And then you presumably also have the ability to just go ahead and regrow a, a neuron of that right shape, too. I think you just slowly replace them, you know, one neuron at a time inside that person's brain, unless they simply did not want to be in a fleshly body anymore. So basically, the equivalent of a prosthetic brain, you're slowly replacing neurons as needed. Um, either with uh, cloned, replicated, or uh, grown, or strictly artificial ones. The interesting thing, though, is that since your neurons are only communicating at fastest, and the ones with the best myelin sheaths, basically the speed of sound, and we can send signals at the speed of light, which is 10 million times faster, um, you know, you could expand a human brain to the size of this planet, almost exactly the same size as this planet, and just have the neurons distribute the same places, and run at the exact same speed if it was on 
you know, an optical light or fast as light speed uh, transmission. So you could start moving their brain to another location, uh, neuron by neuron, without actually having any real signal lag too. But yeah, as a method for extension, I suspect the most popular one for brain digitization or uploading or just extension would be to replace one neuron at a time in the existing brain. James Holden's question is, what are the key next step technologies for resource utilization on the moon? Uh, that is the episode for next week, so I want to be careful to talk about it too much. Uh, spoilers. Um, the biggest one is the ability to refine metals uh, and oxygen right off the surface of the moon, and you know, presumably in as automated fashion as you can. The other one on top of that is the ability to use the local regolith in a fashion that we can make buildings out of relatively easily and automated. And the other caveat on that is making sure that you can do it in a way that doesn't kick up too much of that little dust because in many ways, and we'll talk about this uh, on Thursday, in many ways the hardest part of colonizing the moon is actually be dealing with that lunar dust that gets kicked up when we do stuff there. Uh, it's insidious, it's a pain, and it's potentially a major health hazard. And uh, those would be the, the key ones for ISLU is how to deal with that regolith and make something useful out of it like oxygen, building materials, and metal. Thank you for that. And James, be sure to tune in on Thursday. The next question is from Nicole McInnes. What is your favorite robot from literature or cinema and why? Oh, do you, Oliver? Um, with, a, with a close runner-up probably being uh, Hal from 2001 or Many of the Minds from Ian M. Banks' cultural series. Uh, oh, do you, Oliver? Oh, do you, Oliver? A robot, do you, Oliver? From the Elijah Bailey novels, Caves of Steel, Naked Sun, um... A couple others by Isaac Asimov uh, is probably my personal favorite for robots. He's a detective who helps out the uh, other detective, Elijah Bailey, solve crimes that are rather interesting. And something people tend to forget about Asimov is how what a good mortal mystery writer he was too. So definitely him. And if you have never read those books, do so. They're they're great. <laughs> the three internal asks, what's the single most important thing missing, or the technology to develop to kickstart the space industry? There's a couple of them. Uh, launch cost being cheaper is obviously the most most obvious one, but uh, the one I've been favoring mostly for kickstarting space industry in recent years is power satellites. If you can get the ability to mass produce solar power and uh, rack tunnels down on Earth and beam energy back home, now you've accessed a trillion dollar market, a multi-trillion dollar market in our global economy. If you can be sending power down from space, uh, which after all costs involved is just you know one penny cheaper per kilowatt hour than what we get now, that's your space boom right there. Other ones would be obviously you know if you can start bringing gold home from asteroids. Um, you know the fuel costs involved in taking stuff off the moon if we could find gold there or an asteroid. Stranger sounds is already with the current economy more than enough to justify all that fuel cost in terms of the value of that material. And then of course the other one is any sort of medical science research or production chains that work better in microgravity, like crystal growth, semiconductor growth, things like that. So which one will be the one that is the actual snowball is hard to say, and it's very dependent. Like the power satellites, for instance, not such a big deal if we suddenly got working fusion or people got a lot more comfortable with nuclear fission. So, I think uh, this question from Plastic Pinocchio relates back to one we had earlier this evening, and uh, thank you also for your contribution. 
Um, but his question is, why do we assume that a signal must repeat to be considered artificial when us humans are the first not to do so? The Arcebo signal comes to mind. Because mm -hmm. um, we move that one around, right? We are repeating it, but we move it around because um, we're trying to get as many as possible. The thing to keep in mind is that we have not made a dedicated effort as a space-faring civilization to make contact with anyone. We've kind of just kind of popping those signals around as we go, and a lot of us aren't really very fond of that. I don't think it's a good idea to be transmitting those messages, for instance. Um, I just don't think it's much of a concern because I don't expect to find any aliens. Um, <clears throat> it just depends on what your goal is. If you know there's a civilization there, as opposed to just kind of reaching around at random, then you're going to repeat that message. That's the most logical approach to do it. Just keep repeating until someone hears you. But if you don't know, then yeah, you, you're going to go for that. Especially if you're power limited, you're just going to kind of broadcast around at random and you try as many places as possible. Uh, the thing is, there's an assumption there that if you're sending messages out uh, to other civilizations that you will to do this for centuries at a time and are already spacefaring to some degree. And so that means you're probably much better at targeting things in the first place. And it probably means you have much more energy abundance. In which case, you build a transmitter and you leave it locked on to one location. Or maybe you have it go to a thousand that it repeats every you know, one second blip every thousand seconds or something like that. That's the assumption there. It could be wrong, but if you want to contact people, you are going to repeat. You're going to keep waving at them over and over again and say, look at me, look at me. Um, and that we didn't do that ourselves basically came down to the fact that we don't have enough energy, time, resources, etc. to be doing that transmission that way at this time. We also have a contribution from David Foreman. Thank you for that. And the question is, are there any reasons for off-world settling that you think are often overlooked? Hmm. Uh, thank you for your donation, too. And if I skipped anyone, thank you very much for anyone who's been doing Super Chats. Um, reasons for settlement that have been overlooked. You know, the big one that always gets cited is, of course, is you gain the eggs out of one basket. Uh, the other being that we just have a natural tendency to want to get out there and, and explore. Um, the one that comes to mind is most often overlooked is also the one that's also a potential danger, too. When you set a colony up in place somewhere, it will have a different outlook. You can see that with the colonization things we had during the Age of Sail. And, or, you know, we've been colonizing this planet for many thousands of years as people wander around and set up on places. Um, they have very different outlooks on life. They have very different outlooks, and that can make them potentially an enemy or potentially a friend. But if you're taking the societal viewpoint that, you know, a diversity of viewpoints of many different worldviews, many different challenges they've been facing that have influenced them is a good thing on average, then that's the other big one that you get out of colonization by spreading yourself out to a billion planets and a million habitats from places like Venus's floating cities to things you've carved in the side of a comet to something under an alien sun, that would be the other big benefit I think people tend to overlook is that all those new challenges, all those new viewpoints is going to help your civilization a lot, hopefully. <laughs> um, and uh, another donation here from Tom Michael, and he says, do you think we could ever have another episode involving more insight into underwater colonies and energy production from under the sea? Keep, keep up the great work, dude. I'm loving all of it. Thank you very much. Um, we did the Habitable Planets um, Oceans episode. And the Habitable Planets series, for those who really remember that, that was like our first year or two of production. That was the last one we did was the Ocean Plants and Water Worlds episode. Um, and then the series kind of got put on hiatus in favor of the Outward Bound series. 
And I've always meant to revisit that, and we did to some degree with the Earth 2.0 series in the Sea Study episode and Colonize the Oceans, and to answer the question on that one, I've been increasingly tempted to go back and revisit those because I feel like we could do multiple episodes on Sea Study alone. Now, now, to be fair, almost every episode we do, I feel like we do many more episodes on that topic. We always get them squeezed into 30 minutes. But um, I do think that we probably will revisit that because it's it's just fun. I don't know. For those who uh, remember any of the... Uh, Old old shows like Sequest, DSV, or things like that. The oceans are three quarters of our planet and contain many interesting things. And they also likely be things we find on other planets a lot. So, yes, we probably will revisit that topic. Thank you. Mr. Hats for Cats says, Can we boil a black hole? As in, could we put enough heat energy for it to radiate mass? And he put a little side note that says, Sarah, you're amazing, which is making me <laughs> blush. <laughs> well, you are amazing. The cat and hat thing made me uh, think of, and I probably shouldn't say it, but uh, Dr. Seuss, for those who remember, I always loved Dr. Seuss, and I always wanted to do his eulogy. It says, uh, should we bury him in a box? Should we bury him without socks? Does he smell like green eggs and ham? Yes, he does, Sam. I <laughs> I loved his walk way up as a kid. Uh, <laughs> what was the question? I think? <laughs> um, the real question was, can we boil a black hole? As in, could we put enough heat energy in for it to radiate mass? Um, hmm. Well, they don't really... If you pump a lot of heat into a black hole, it's just going to absorb it, probably. Now, it should stay very hot, and black holes actually are pretty hot. Um, but um, to get them to emit mass, what you end up doing is... They, they very slowly radiate with Hawking radiation. And the Hawking radiation is not always photons. Um, first, you'd want to do a very small one to do that, but what you'd probably be doing is... Because it can also come out of other virtual particle pairs, like a proton and antiproton. Those are just expected to be less common. What you do is you'd probably reflect the radiated energy away from, uh, from a small black hole, reflect that energy right back in, except for when it's protons or neutrons or antiprotons or electrons, and you'd siphon that off and just keep putting the normal photons back in again, which I guess would be pumping heat into it. So that method could potentially work, yeah. Um, this one is an interesting question from Lost in Thought, and thank you for your generous donation as well. He says, could an artificial super intelligent cyber bio clone of me microwave a burrito beyond the plank temperature? And would it be able to eat the said burrito? No, because the plank temperature, uh, you know, for those of you familiar with plank units, we tend to think it was very small. Like plank meter is like 10 to negative 45 meters, which is a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of the size of an atom, and that, that Planck second or time interval is like a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. Uh, however, some of them are very big, and Planck temperature is one of those. We believe the Planck temperature is the temperature that it would be at the core of a Planck star, which is a possible black hole, or when the Big Bang happened. It is very hot. It is the hottest thing ever. Uh, and we should not be able to get hotter than that. And what's more, if you actually microwave the burrito to that temperature, you would destroy everything within, if not the planet, possibly the solar system. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'd have to run the numbers on that, but it would be very. So you're saying there would be nothing left to eat the burrito? There would be nothing left to eat the burrito. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Well. We would like to avoid that. Joshua Scrivener says, Do you think there are any particular special uses of neutron stars and other exotic objects for the interstellar civilizations? 
Uh, we were talking about making phosphorus earlier, and I'm pretty sure you could actually use neutron stars as a, a cheap way to mass produce heavier elements. Uh, indeed, that's where a lot of the heavier elements come from. We think supernova, but they actually come from neutron stars colliding, or white dwarfs colliding. And you wouldn't necessarily have to do that specific process of an actual collision uh, in favor of just siphoning the matter off to something like a particle collider and doing that at a small scale. So it might be a very easy way to produce rare elements like phosphorus, for instance, or gold or silver, etc. So uh, here's a question from Sebastian McConnell. If gravitons exist, is it possible that we could one day use them for artificial gravity? Possibly, yeah. If you can, I mean, gravity kind of falls into three types. You've got the gravity that pulls objects together, what we call active gravitational force. You've got the gravity that, and this is what we'd say, actually I should say mass, comes in three types. You've got the passive effect of how much mass pulls things and how much it responds to being pulled, and then how much it responds by being pushed on by another force. And those are your three types of mass, uh, two of which are gravity. If you can find any way to actually replicate that without using mass, you know, say we might emit a signal, then you have options, and I think we discussed this in the anti-gravity episode, the uh, Tech anti-gravity episode, um, then you suddenly have options for producing non-omnidirectional gravity and, you know, without necessarily having a ton of mass. So you might get your artificial plating off of stuff like that. Um, and that would be one of those really game-changing technologies because then you could probably start getting away with making things like black holes that don't actually have a ton of tidal force involved. I'm going to wrap up with just a couple more questions here. We have a donation from Cozy High again, and um, this is a follow-up question to an earlier question, and they want to know, how could future 3D printers be used or misused? It depends on how good they are. You know, what I was saying, we brought this up in the Santa Claus machine episode, don't expect it to be a Star Trek replicator. Uh, don't ever expect anything that fast um, or that intricate. But if you had something that was pointed off, the obvious answer was used to make all the components you need to make a doomsday weapon. Um, and you could potentially be doing that in the basement. 3D printers, I think, for the near future at least, are likely to be limited to slow, intricate production. Or if you just wanted to make a something that was not available for purchase but you had the schematic for. But it's most likely to be used dangerously, I would say, if we can get small enough with it for the printing of DNA. Mm. And specifically printing any type of DNA that you want and can assemble on a computer model. In which case you can print the DNA for Ebola, or the RNA, I should say. And the RNA would be a lot easier to print because it's so much shorter. You could print the DNA for Ebola that you'd model to be even more dangerous. You could print it to be something that was the most infectious, fatal disease you could ever have. Because, of course, in nature, they generally tend not to link up that way. The more infectious it is, the less lethal it tends to be, that kind of thing. You could set it so that it was a thing that had a built-in timer, where only after it replicated 500 times and not been exposed to oxygen to indicate it was inside the same host organism, would it suddenly turn on its lethal mode? So that would be the most dangerous neotome option, I think, for, um, for printers, DNA printers, RNA printers in that case. So uh, we have a question here uh, from Abhinav. How, how would the Dyson Swarm be protected from solar flares? It kind of depends on which type of Dyson Swarm we're doing. If you're doing solar collectors, those are, by the very nature, are supposed to be thin, cheap, thin and cheap. In which case, you might not bother to, you know, protect them. You might simply, you know, suck them back in or replace them. If you're doing something that is essentially one, 
you know, micron thick sheet of aluminum 700 kilometers across that bounces light to a, a expensive and valuable actual power collector, you might just have it set that when the solar flare is detected, they just fold in like a, like, you know, a, in reverse of a flower and protect it while they get vaporized themselves. But for the most part, solar flares are not nearly as dangerous as we tend to think of them sometimes from, you know, from fiction. It's very easy to harden a structure. And a thing to remember when we talk about things like cylinder habitats as opposed to just big solar collectors, a place where people live, on Earth we live over the ground. The ground is very protective. Inside an O'Neill cylinder, you live under the ground. Space and its dangerous things are, you know, outside of the dirt and the metal from you. You look at the sky, you can see the sky. Inside a cylinder habitat, you've got meters of dirt, steel, and structure around you. So you can build all of those as Faraday cages. And by default, your typical your cylinder, for instance, is a Faraday cage. You're quite protected against EMP that way. And so it's mostly about hardening what you need to harden and to the degree that you need to harden to be economical. And how much is economical is one of those things we'll figure out by doing it in stages. You know, we want to do it as cheap as possible for minimum replacement and danger. I'm going to wrap up with just three more questions here. Um, we have one from Dinchos Stivnov. Have you watched Babylon 5? And if yes, what do you think about the portrayal of alien co cultures? I love your content. Thank you. And I love Babylon 5. Um, the sad thing about watching Babylon 5 is with the force one to really take advantage of CGI, which means that you don't really want to watch it at HD resolution anymore because it tends to show through, but it's it's a great show. I... Typically rated as tied with me with like Star Trek, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine is like the best shows of the 1990s. Um, the aliens portrayed in there were often a little bit classically cliche sci-fi ones where they had a personality trait that was universal to the species uh, to the point where it was more of like a cultural than we'd expect from an entire civilization. But other than that, I thought the portrayal there was great, especially the... Uh, you know, with the, the willingness to actually have aliens that were not humanoid in nature. Uh, and I'd say it's cut from most versions of The Gathering, the original TV pilot movie, because it came out looking like a Jim Henson puppet show, but they showed all sorts of very atypical and non-humanoid aliens in that. Uh, but great show. If you've not seen it, go watch it. Just uh, keep in mind the graphics are a little dated now. <laughs> Lucas Harvey says, I'm worried about engineering Mars. Wouldn't any atmosphere we make just get ripped apart by the sun? Nope. Uh, you wouldn't make it unless, I mean, given time it will. The first thing to understand is that atmospheric leakage is something that, so long as the speed of the gas from temperature is, you know, well under the actual escape velocity of the planet, and, and the escape velocity of Mars is about 10 times higher than what we expect the atmospheric motion to be for those particles. That is going to result in a very slow evaporation rate of loss, and every atmosphere leaks. What caused most of that leakage is um, going to be a lack of magnetosphere. And people always talk about wanting to put a big, you know, restart the core in Mars. You don't have to do that. You just build a big metal ring around the planet with some solar panels, and that's an electromagnetic, you know, artificial one. It's very relatively easy to make. And it has a high power draw, but it's nothing like what you'd you know, involve in a normal level of power a planet would need anyway. So. It's not trivial, but it's not even the top 10 list of hard things to do to terraform planet. Great. So the last question for today is from Jay McDonald, and it kind of looks into your future episodes. He says, any chance of doing a dedicated Starship episode, seeing as it has the potential to provide the initial capabilities to launch the beginnings of the industries and construction projects that this channel discusses for the potential future? Hmm. Um, I'm sorry, what was that last piece again? Um, well, the last part is that a starship, 
a dedicated, dedicated Starship episode would have the potential to provide initial capabilities to launch the beginning of the industry and construction projects that you've discussed in the past. And, and uh, Jay is wondering if there's any chance that you're planning to do a dedicated Starship yes. episode. We did the Spaceship Propulsion Compendium years back. It was actually the first poll for an episode I ever ran on, on, um, on Patreon in that case. And Drew McTighe is one of our moderators these days. He helped me rewrite that episode. It was his idea, and it was a great episode. I love doing it. Um, it's one of those ones where I always thought about expanding into a series too, but so often we talk about spaceship design only in the context of a specific, you know, uh, episode, like how to get to another solar system or how would you build a colony ship. But yeah, I think we could probably do that, but I don't think it would be an episode, it would probably be more like a series. So for the moment, I'm not starting any more series until we finished out at least the six, four, four, six episodes of becoming, you know, planetary species. But, uh, I think, yes, there's a very good chance we would do that. And I think it'll probably be a lot of fun. Well, I'm afraid that we're wrapping up on time. It's yeah. already after oh, 5 yeah. o'clock. And so thank you to all of those who've donated and sent their questions in and to the mods for helping moderate. And thank you everybody for the Super Chats. And uh, we will see you all on Thursday. Have a great week. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.